What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Gardening has been part of mankind's history since the beginning. In fact, if you go back and study the book of Genesis, you will discover that God placed man in the garden and he literally commanded Adam to dress it and to keep it. And as I think about the concept of gardening, I begin to ask myself a question. I wonder if Adam used a tiller in his garden. (laughs) I wonder if Adam used a shovel or a wheelbarrow or a hoe or a rake or what did he use in his garden? Well, as we think about all these things, if, if you were going to have a, have a garden in your backyard, you, of course, would, would need gloves, perhaps, or a garden fork, or a shovel, or a rake, or all of these things, or maybe, just maybe, you would have your nice water hose with the adjustable knob on the end, <laughs> or a bucket, or all these different things. You know, as I've been meditating in, in this passage There's a unique word that is mentioned seven times that I'll be honest with you. When I read it, I had no idea what it meant. So I decided, well, you know, we were told by all these people these days that these other versions of the Bible are going to clear things up for us. So I got out all the other versions of the Bible and I began to read this chapter and this passage and it had the same exact word. So I thought to myself, well, maybe if I would get out a paraphrase, it would help clear things up for me. So I got out the message and the paraphrase that somebody just kind of wrote down their own paraphrase of every passage, and the same word was used there. So nothing was able to help me clear it up until I went to one of the most common resources today, and that is the World Wide Web, Google. And I said, Google, what is a sickle? What is a sickle? Just didn't know what it was. So if you have no idea what a sickle is or was like me, If you just imagine a long stick with a curved knife on top, that's kind of what a sickle is. And sometimes they have a short handle. I went to the Home Depot and I asked him yesterday, do you have a sickle? No. I went to Lowe's and said, hey, do you have a sickle? No. I went to Tractor Supply. Do you have a sickle? No. Nobody had a sickle. I was going to bring it. It was going to be a perfect illustration to help explain what a sickle was. But I guess all of you are Bible scholars and garden experts and you know what a sickle is. But I share that with you to know that in our passage today, the Bible mentions the sickle, and it's a tool that in the ancient world they would use at the end of the harvest to gather the grain and the clusters of grape. And in fact, it was a special tool that they would use at the very end of the harvest. If you know anything about gardening or farming, you know that you're going to have multiple harvests throughout the season, but there will come a time when the final harvest has taken place And you come in and you literally gather everything up and you take out the withered plants. And we see that is what's going on in this chapter and this scene of the book of Revelation. And so our passage today is about the harvest at the end of this age. 
And it's not a harvest of the saved, but it's literally a harvest of the unsaved and unregenerate and all those who has exhausted the long-suffering and patience of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once and for all, God, through his Son, will bring judgment to this world. I know this is going to sound cheesy. I know this is going to sound silly, but I only share this statement with you because maybe it will help sink in what this passage means to us, and maybe it'll be an unforgettable message in your mind. When Christ swings his sickle, this world will be in a pickle. (laughs) When Christ swings his sickle, this world will be in a pickle. It surely will. That is the silly, clever statement I wanted you to kind of take note of. But, but today, I want to label the thoughts of my message today with this question. Who is the real grim reaper? Who is the real grim reaper? Well, I think that in order to properly understand this question, we need to go back to the prophet Joel. And many of you know that, that about the prophet Joel because in Sunday school, we've been going through this through Brother Joel, at least in the class up here in the sanctuary. And I want you to understand that, that John is is a believer stranded on the island of Patmos receiving this unique vision from God. And and he has other passages of scripture in mind. He was a theologian. He was a Bible scholar, if you will, of his day. He was a pastor and he knew God's word. And it's interesting that that as he's writing these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Revelation chapter 14, I think that he had in mind Joel chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13. It says, Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Notice it says that he sits to judge. When Jesus is coming, when he comes again, I find it interesting that, yes, we know he's going to be standing, but here in this phrase, it says he is seated. If you've ever seen a commander-in-chief in an army go out into battle sitting down, you'll know that that's not the proper position to go out in battle. And we know that Jesus is not going to need the warfare of our war. He is going to speak and conquer with his mouth. And notice verse 13 of Joel chapter 3. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And he says that great verse, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. My friends, there will come a day when Christ, the reaper, will come and reap the final harvest of this world. So who is the real grim reaper? My friend, the answer is very simple. Christ is the reaper of the earth. So here is more of a serious statement, and I want to summarize the message today. Yes, I know that, that when Christ swings his sickle, this world will be in a pickle, but understand that, that here's really the main thought I want you to walk away with today. Fear Christ the reaper, because he will judge every sinner. Fear Christ the reaper, because he will judge every sinner. 
I believe the entirety of chapter 14 is, is a glimpse of the future of what's going to take place. And then in chapters 15 all the way to chapter 19, the Bible tells us it'll go in and dissect some of those events. But here, I, I want you to understand this, that, it, that John is writing to us and he is reminding us today that the greatest figure that we need to fear and reverence and honor, obey is not the White House, is not any governmental system of this world in this age, but it is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Bible says to fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul and cast those into a fire of furnace. Fear Christ the reaper because he will judge every sinner. I know you're probably asking yourself this question. Why should we fear Christ the reaper? Well, today from this passage, I'm going to give you three reasons why every person, every man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever lived or ever will live is summoned by God to fear the Son of God. The first thought is going to come from verses 14 down through verse 16. And as I read these three verses, I wrote down this thought that I want to share with you today. Fear Christ the reaper because of the certainty of his judgment. Fear Christ the reaper because of the certainty of his judgment. Look at verse number 14. The Bible says, and I looked. Now notice in the book of Revelation, when the phrase, and I looked, shows up in the English Bible, it is a transitional phrase that John is looking in this direction, and now he fixes his gaze to another direction, and he's giving another miniature vision within the entirety of the larger vision of the apocalypse. And so now we see that he is looking, and he sees in his mind, he is looking, and he sees a white cloud. And upon that cloud, the Bible says there's one like unto the Son of Man. And so I just want to share with you, I believe this is Jesus sitting on that cloud. There's commentators and scholars who try to say it's an angel. But there's, there's no way in my mind that this could be another angelic being. Notice that back in the book of Daniel, the Bible says one like unto the Son of God. And we know that, that was Jesus making a Christophany or a bodily manifestation of himself before the birth in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And so now we see that he is sitting on this cloud and then he's coming in a sense to judge the world. And notice it says he had on his head a golden crown. Now this crown... It is the Stephanos crown. That is the victor's crown. This is the crown that would be given to those in the Greek games, in those old ancient Olympic games. Back in the ancient world, they would win their races and they would accomplish those athletic events and they would be taken and placed on a stage and given a wreath to place on their head called the Stephanos victor's crown. And so we see that Jesus, when he's coming on this cloud, he is the one worthy to have the victor's crown because he is the one who conquered death. He is the one who conquered hell, and he is the one who conquered the grave. My friends, we have victory found in none other than Jesus Christ. And then it says that he had in his hand a sharp sickle, that sharp gardening tool used at the end of the harvest. And it says in verse 15, now notice that the book of Revelation chapter 14 has mentioned other angels, and now another angel comes out of the temple. Most likely this is the temple in heaven. And says, crying with a loud voice to him that sits on that cloud, 
He says, thrust in your sickle. In other words, swing at your sickle and reap. It says, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, there's a few key words in this passage, of course, of the term sickle is mentioned several times, but then the term ripe is mentioned twice. Here in verse number 15 and again in verse number 18, and it's interesting, in our English Bible, it's the exact same word, but in the Greek Bible, it is two different words. And here in verse number 15, it gives the idea that this term ripe, this harvest, most likely the grain harvest is what's in picture here, it is overripe and it has been used up to exhaustion. And so in other words, the harvester would come in and he would rip all the plants, rip all the withered plants out of the garden, out of the area there to be used no more. In other words, it is overripe and useless. And so what does this mean? Well, I believe it coincides with other passages of scripture. And it just simply is reminding us today that there will come a time when all those who will be saved, will be saved. There will come a time when all those who will come to Christ will have come to Christ. And that everybody else alive in this earth will no longer want Jesus. Now, I don't claim to understand everything about foreknowledge, but we know that God knows who is all going to come to faith in Christ. And so here, I believe what's having in picture here is that the foreknowledge of God sees here in this passage through the writer John that this is the time when those who are alive in this earth, there will be an end of a harvest of souls being saved. And now it's time to harvest in all of the unregenerated, unrepentant, lost souls of the earth. And then verse 16, it says, And he that sat in the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. My friends, Christ is the reaper. In Daniel chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 24, and Matthew chapter 26, and Acts chapter 1, and in Matthew chapter 25, we see in all these other passages of the reality, of the certainty of the second coming of Jesus Christ and how he comes. He came the first time as a lowly, humble baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, but he will come the second time as a ruling, reigning, thundering judge to rule this earth. And I want you to understand this, that not only will Christ judge this world, at the end of the tribulation period, to close out the age. But he will also judge every human being that's ever lived. All the unbelievers will stand at the great white throne judgment and there be held guilty to their sins. And all of us that are believers, we will stand at the, at the judgment seat or what they call the Bema seat. And there we will give an account for how we conducted our lives since we came to Christ and faith in him. Fear Christ the reaper because of the certainty of his judgment. Judgment day is coming, my friends, to this earth. And so it is important, it is urgent, it is necessary that we prepare for that day. 
And that because we know of the certainty of his judgment, this passage should urge us, it should awaken us out of our, our sleep, sleepiness as a Christian to get into the highways and the hedges of our community and share the good news of Christ with the world that one day you'll face the judgment unless you get right with God. And that brings us to verses 17 through 20. Ultimately, this section is divided into two sections, verses 14 through 16, and then verses 17 through 20. And so why should we fear Christ? Well, first of all, we saw in the first few verses, fear Christ the reaper because of the certainty of his judgment. But then I want you to notice in verses 17 through 20, secondly today, fear Christ the reaper because of the severity of his judgment. Fear Christ the reaper because of the severity of his judgment. As I shared before, this coincides with the prophet Joel in chapter 3. In fact, this also coincides with Zechariah chapter 14, Isaiah chapter 63. And ultimately, I believe what is in picture in these last section is the battle of Armageddon that will be mentioned later on in chapter 16 and 19. But notice here, the Bible says in verse 17, that another angel comes out of the temple which is in heaven, and this angel also had in his hand a sharp sickle. And then another angel came up out from the altar. Now, remember back earlier in the book of Revelation, the altar was mentioned, and that is the place where the prayers of the saints go up. And so out of this altar, we see this angel comes flying out of it. And it, apparently this angel had power over fire. And he cries out with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle. So this angel out of the altar is crying out to the angel out of the temple. And he says this, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Now in verses 14 through 16, scholars are in agreement that it's about the grain harvest. But in verses 17 through 20, scholars are in agreement that this is about the grape harvest. They're two different. One is uh, on a vine and one is on the ground. And so this term for ripe, it's different than the first one in verse 15. This one means that it has reached its age of maturity and it's ready for use. It's different. It's different than the other one that it's reached its usefulness and now we need to throw it away. Here it says it has reached its maturity and now it's ready to be used. And then it says in verse number 19 that the angel thrust in his sickle to the earth and gathered in the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And then verse number 20, the Bible says that this winepress was trodden without the city. Most likely the city is Jerusalem and it's outside of the city of Jerusalem. And the trot, let me just explain something to you. If we were to go back into the ancient world and you were to go to a vineyard, you would have these, these long rows of the grapevines in a vineyard. And then what they would do is they would go out and they would gather the clusters of the grape and they would bring them and they would put it into an oversized large bathtub. And then they would trample upon them. The King James says trodden. Same thing. And, and all that means is, is they would have specific people, hopefully their feet were cleaned because <laughs> nobody has time to drink that kind of grape juice. Anyways, they, they would go in and after all those clusters of grape were placed in this large bathtub, for lack of a better term, they would walk in and they would just start stomping the grapes. 
and they would stomp, and they would stomp, and they would stomp until they've stomped enough. And then it would most likely be angled in such a way that the juice would run down and drain into a pipe and then go down through the drain and into other tubs or containers there to be taken for other purposes. And so it's interesting that the first word for ripe, it means that it's reached its, its period of usefulness and you throw it away. And here it gives the idea that, that this is the grapes that you need to take and put them in the wine press or the oversized bathtub and trample on them so they can be used. The idea is simply this, is that just like earlier in the book of Revelation chapter 14, the Bible says that, that here it gives the idea of the wine in the cup, if it is, remember, as I shared with you last time, that it would go, the wine in the Old, in, in the old days of, of not just the Old Testament Jews, but in the early days of Christ in the ancient world, they would take that wine. At first, it was grape juice. They would send it through the fermentation process to preserve it. And then the Jewish culture was they would take water and they would dilute it with water so that it would lose its sense of power so that they would not be drunken from the juice. And so here it gives this idea that this is the juice ready to be poured out without mixture, as it said earlier. So in other words, the wrath of God that's going to be poured out in this world, it's not going to be diluted with grace. It's not going to be diluted with love or mercy. In fact, Jesus 2,000 years ago took the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon himself on the cross so that mankind could escape that judgment. And so now that all we have to do is call out to him and believe by faith that Christ's sacrifice on the cross can atone our sins. And so you either receive that grace of God imputed upon you through Christ or you receive the wine of God's judgment without dilution gives this idea that it's the strongest that it can ever be. And I want you to know that as I've been reading verse number 20, I am disturbed by this verse. And if you read this verse and it doesn't disturb you, then I don't know what really what to say. But it says in verse 20, and the winepress was trodden without the city. And then it says, and blood came out of the winepress. Now we know that grape juice looks red like blood. And if it gets stained on your clothes, it could resemble blood. But then he goes on to say, even to the horse, horse's bridles. Scholars estimate that's about four feet high. And then it says, by the space of 1,600 furlongs. In other words, that is a, about 184 miles. So to give you an idea of what is being presented here, is God is saying his wrath is going to be poured out from the northernmost part of Israel to the very southernmost part of Israel. Now, does this mean there's going to be a literal river of blood for 180 some miles it's four feet deep i don't know to be honest i'd hope not but it might be 
Just to give you an idea how far that is, that's like from driving to Roanoke to Asheville, North Carolina. That's the same distance. And so imagine here, in other words, the, the point here, maybe this is exaggeration, maybe it's literal truth. I don't know. But what I do know is that God's wrath that's going to be poured out in the coming chapters, these bowls, these vials, it is going to be something that nobody would ever dream or wish for. And here, verse 20 is literally reminding us of, of the aftermath of the greatest war our world will ever see, and that is the Battle of Armageddon. After that crazy battle, there's literally going to be a holocaust and a bloodbath all throughout the area of Jerusalem. And so this last section is reminding us of the severity of God's judgment. So why? Why would we fear Christ? Well, fear Christ the reaper because of the severity of his judgment. And if you think this is bad, if you think the judgment that God is going to pour out upon this world is horrific, then imagine a place that was prepared for Satan and the fallen angels and there to dwell without the presence of God's grace, love, and mercy for all eternity. If you think this judgment in verse number 20 is bad, then my friends, being without the grace and mercy and love of God for all eternity will be far worse. Who is the real grim reaper? Well, the answer is simple. Christ is the reaper. The first section teaches us fear Christ the reaper because of the certainty of his judgment. The last section here teaches us fear Christ the reaper because of the severity of his judgment. But now as, as we want to tie all these verses together, I want to share this with you. The third and final reason why we, every human being, every man, woman, boy, and girl should bow their knee and fear Christ. Fear Christ the reaper because of the finality of his judgment. Fear Christ the reaper because of the finality of his judgment. Verses 14 through 20, yes, it speaks about how God's judgment is certain. Yes, it speaks about how God's judgment is severe, but it speaks also about how God's judgment is final. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, all of them, they're not going to get the final word on this, in this age. In fact, God is. And in fact, God is going to get the last swing, and that is with his unique judging sickle. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, we read about the reality of Christ's return. In fact, in, fact, in the life of Christ, I guess there's a tad bit of debate about this, but we can summarize his sermons into five distinctive sermons. And in one of his sermons, my favorite one is on the Mount of Olivet. And there he's giving his Olivet Discourse. And there he is preaching about the apocalypse and the end times and his return. And he says, immediately after the tribulation, He's going to come, and he's going to gather the elect, that is, the, God's chosen people of that age. He's going to gather the believers together to begin his earthly kingdom. God will have the final say-so in this age. In John chapter 14, we read about the reality of Christ that he's going to come and return for you and me. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we have the reality and the finality of the rapture of the church. How if we understand Bible prophecy correct, then the, the second coming of Christ is in two phases. You have the first phase, the rapture of the church. And then after the church is gone, it begins around that time, the, the tribulation period of seven years. And then after that, Jesus will descend down after that seven years and plant his foot on the Mount of Olives. And, and here we see he's coming down in a cloud. However, exactly, we see the other passages. We see a cloud mentioned in Thessalonians as well about the rapture. And so we know that, that he's coming to judge the world and establish his kingdom. But then the one that stands out to me about the other apocalyptic passages that are parallel to the book of Revelation is 2 Peter chapter 3. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, we read about how there is going to be people going and preaching the promise of his coming. And then people will say, well, hey, you've been saying this for all these centuries, all these millenniums. For 2,000 years, they've been saying Jesus is coming back, and he hasn't come back yet. So where's the promise of his coming? And then the Bible says that when Christ does come, he will not destroy the world with another globalized flood, but he will actually destroy the world with fire. Listen, if you believe John chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 3, when it speaks about God's love, you have to also believe 2 Peter chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 14, where it speaks about God's wrath. If God's word is the word of God, we have to consistently believe it as God's word. We can't pick and choose. And so today we are face to face with the reality that one day, God's judgment will finally be unleashed upon this world. You know, it's, it's hard to believe, but this weekend we've honored the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You know, some days I have a hard time remembering what I ate for breakfast. And, and in fact, some, most Sundays I have a hard time remembering what, what clothes I wore last Sunday. <laughs> don't want to wear the same ones every Sunday. <laughs> but there's some events that just take place that you remember exactly what you were doing. And on 9-11, 2001, I was in my seventh grade civics class at Benjamin Franklin Middle School. And there, in second period, just a normal day. But when my teacher walked in, I can't remember her name, but she was a wonderful teacher. And she walked in, and I could just tell something disturbed her. And she began to share what took place in New York City. And I was perplexed. I began to look to my right and look to my left, and nobody else sound confused, because at the time, I had no idea what the Twin Towers were. But unfortunately, that day, I, I figured it out. It's interesting, we are told that about 3,000 people died in those tragic events of 9-11. And among those 3,000 victims that were tragically killed, 412 of them were emergency workers in New York City who responded to the attacks of the World Trade Center towers. This included 343 firefighters, and that also counted one chaplain and two paramedics of the New York City fire department. The most heroic thing on that day 
is from men and women just like these firefighters and these first responders going in and marching into the Twin Towers that were just burning in flames and pulling people out of that fire. Today, this weekend, we'll never forget their sacrifice. But I'm reminded as I think about their sacrifice, I'm reminded about the sacrifice of Christ, how Jesus came to make it possible for us to escape the fiery, righteous indignation and judgment of God. And I'm reminded of what Jude said in chapter 1, where he said, And if some have compassion, making a difference. And this is an amazing verse, and most of the time we just stop there. How in context can we have compassion? Well, it says, And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. My question for you today is this. How are you risking your life to pull people out of the fiery judgment of God? Christ is the reaper. And we have to fear him because of the certainty of his judgment, the severity of his judgment, and the finality of his judgment. Fear Christ the reaper because he will judge every sinner. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.